Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi Jim, great to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand. As always, tons and tons to talk about, uh, lots of new economic data, and I think are certainly going to get the financial markets excited, if not everybody else. Today, we had the all-important payroll report, jobs report from the United States, and for the 11th month in a row, economists have got it wrong, and got it wrong in the same direction. They've underestimated the number of jobs, we'll talk a little bit about that. There's a big deal going on in the west coast of the states with something called Silicon Valley Bank that is affecting all financial markets and has gotten a big downdraft, actually. Stock markets have fallen in the last 24 hours a lot because of what's going on in that one bank. And people are wondering whether there are echoes of the great financial crisis with a bank getting itself into difficulties. And that's definitely worth talking about. Back to economic data on this side of the pond. We've had UK GDP surprising on the upside this morning. Yet again, continuing that trend that you and I have been talking about since December. And further afield, we've got a record-breaking, unprecedented third term of office for Xi Jinping, president for life, it seems. And we are seeing, again, uh, warnings that Taiwan could well be the issue to dominate geopolitics in the years ahead. And I know there's some Irish economic data that's been published this week, particularly to do with savings, that contains a few interesting nuggets that if we get time, Jim, we will talk about. So which of those would you like to start with, mate? Well, Chris, before we get into that agenda, I'd just like to uh, make reference to the piece you put up on our Substack account on Thursday 
about, of all things, Gary Lineker. Um, I, I love Gary Lineker as a footballer for England, for Leicester City, for Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, scored a lot of great goals. Uh, I love his performance and match of the day. I think he's a great uh, football commentator. Uh, so I'd be a huge fan of Gary Lineker. I was shocked at what happened to him during the week. I think he was 100% correct um, in saying what he said. Uh, but it has given rise to a lot of fury and support on the other side. But uh, I thought your piece was quirky, was interesting. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Um, Yes, I forgot about that. And I appreciate you mentioning it. Give it a plug. Uh, It actually has been one of our more popular pieces, written pieces on the site uh, of late. And I threw it together to try and really summarize the huge outpouring of stuff, uh, written stuff, blogs, pods, politicians, they've all been speaking and writing, opining about this. And I wanted to synthesize it uh, for myself and for um, anybody else that is interested in it, clearly is of interest to an awful lot of people. As you say, it's a storm. It's a storm that's come out of nowhere. And Britain's most popular football commentator is at the centre of it, because he tweeted about the government's introduction of something called the Illegal Migration Bill. The first thing to say about that is how wonderful uh, the name Illegal Migration Bill actually is, because the bill itself, we think, the lawyers anyway, think it's illegal. It's, it's a bill that's going to break uh, both British and international law. Uh, so that's, <laughs> in and of itself, I suspect, tells you all that you need to go. Um, I think the most important thing of the week was the fact that Gary Lineker's tweets have dominated the headlines for days now. The tabloids, the usual suspects, the Mail, the Express, have been calling for his head. They've been demanding that the BBC not just admonish him, but fire him. And what this has meant is that Gary Lineker is dominating the news headlines all week. And I think that that's exactly what the Tory party's PR handlers wanted from this story, because it means that the other stuff that the British should be focused on, the state of the economy, cost of living, housing, the NHS, the state of the public sector generally, all of that stuff, that real stuff, that substantive stuff, which costs the Tories votes, gets pushed out of the headlines. So I think there's a a bit of a media thing, media management thing going on here. One of the things I say is that the spluttering, I like this sentence, even though I wrote it myself, the spluttering, spleen venting, bloviating list of usual suspected wing nuts. Bloviating, well, some would say, Jim, it's what you and I do every time on this podcast. We just, you know, spout on about stuff. About, about which we, we we know very little. Nigel Farage bloviates all the time, every time he opens his mouth, in my opinion. So you, you get the idea? I do. All right. All of these people have emerged from their cockroach havens to condemn Lineker. I don't pay too much attention to what those people say, but I do think that there was an interesting exchange between something called Matthew, somebody called Matthew Syed and Alistair Campbell, who was Tony Blair's PR henchman back in the day. And Syed was very much on the side of those who were saying that Lineker was in the wrong. And he used two classic techniques that clever, there are some still around, clever politicians and clever debaters use when dealing with a tricky subject. Um, First of all, you state something that is called a non sequitur, which is a conclusion or a statement that does not logically follow from your previous argument. 
So he said, Gary Lineker's reputation is in large part derived from his appearances on the BBC. That's perfectly true. Perfectly true. A large part, but by no means all, because Lineker is a freelance journalist. And I believe he was a footballer before he was a journalist. Quite a good one. So, but what he's saying is true. But then he goes, then Sai goes on to say that because his reputation derives in part from his appearance on the BBC, that he shouldn't be allowed to say what he said. And that, to me, is a non sequitur. The one thing does not follow from the other. The other very clever trick that very good politicians do, very good debaters do, is that when faced with something tricky that they're dealing with in a sort of Q&A session or a debate, is that they look the questioner or debater in the eye and they say something profoundly true. Or maybe it isn't that profound. Just state something that is obviously true. And if the inattentive listener is then hears that that truth, they might nod along and say, well, yeah, that's true. That really is true. And it sort of muddies the waters, makes it perhaps what everything else came before that true statement was true, which is the, the point of saying something like, I have to tell you, in all sincerity, the sun rises in the east every day. So it's not quite as overt as that, but you get my point. And it's all about tricks and techniques to deflect from, from the argument. And Syed did this. He said, and you know, British society has never been more divided, which, of course, is perfectly true. You and I have talked about that forever. And it's got nothing to do with Gary Lineker. The point about the being on the BBC and therefore not being allowed to express your political views. You know somebody called Jeremy Clarkson? I certainly do. I'm a big fan of Clarkson's Farm. I love it. And he's been... That's not on the BBC, is it? It's on no, Prime, on I think. Amazon. Prime, yeah. yeah. Um, but he used to be on the BBC a lot. At the same time, we'd be writing very political articles in the Sunday Times. Judy Dench has opined about Brexit. She's been on the BBC an awful lot. So there are lots and lots of examples um, of people who have been very political and very BBC. And if there is anybody who is the BBC, which Gary Lineker is not, it's Richard Sharp, who's the chairman of the BBC, who is a Tory party donor and kept hidden the fact that he's involved in arranging Boris Johnson's finances. So the piece goes on and on and on about this, about the freedom of speech, about the right to speak, about the arguments that people use to deny Lineker the right to freedom of speech. And I conclude that it's all a load of bollocks. So that was my piece, Jim. Uh, China, Chris, disturbs me a lot. Um, Xi Jinping formally beginning his third term in office um, this weekend, the longest serving leader since communists came to power in 1949. And this weekend, other senior officials are being appointed to his cabinet. And all of those, without exception, are Xi Jinping loyalists. So the concentration of power, the growing authoritarianism of China is becoming just more and more pronounced. And indeed, it's not unique to China. You know, we've seen it in Turkey. We've seen it in Hungary. We're seeing it in Mexico at the moment. It's happening all over the place. Um, But one of the... The concerns about what's happening in China is covered extensively by The Economist this weekend, and that is the situation vis-a-vis Taiwan and the very real possibility that some stage over the next few years, uh, the Chinese will invade Taiwan and that that will have to elicit a response from the United States. The consequences of that are too frightening to actually contemplate, I think. Um, And it's one of those stories you sort of read and you kind of try and forget about it if you want to maintain your sanity 
and sleep at night and so on. And and you should turn around and focus on the the nicer things in life like um craft beer, Bob Dylan music, you know, whatever whatever your your thing is. But the th- th- this you know I, I there's no doubt about it. I think that we've seen in the last 12 months the world has been sort of subdivided into you're either with Russia or against Russia. And I, I think over the next, and I think that's a subset of the whole US-Chinese relationship, which is really going to dominate global geopolitics, you know, for decades to come. And none of what we see looks particularly um, encouraging at this juncture. I agree. It's a vista too awful to contemplate. I'm no military expert, and I've certainly no claim to know what is in the mind of Xi Jinping, but the centralization of power, the the shift to even more authoritarian rule, it's all very, very disturbing. The only crumb of comfort from a from a military point of view is the, the stuff I've been reading from people who are self-described military experts, and I have no reason to doubt them, say that he will have had pause for thought given what's happened to the Russian army in Ukraine and the experience of armies generally, invaders generally, uh, or historically, including Ukraine, astonished by the extent to which the inhabitants, the citizens of the country, fight for their land. And the Russians were thought the Ukrainians would uh, welcome them with open arms in some respects and, and have been surprised. And there are lots of different episodes of that. So the extent to which the resistance that the Chinese would have to invading Taiwan I think is something that is giving pause for thought. The other logistical point is that he, rather than crossing a land border, he has to cross the the, the ocean, and uh, that gives rise to all sorts of military issues. Unless he plans to just flatten Taiwan first before he invades, it it, it could be tricky. But that's all I know. I, I hope none of that happens, of course. Uh, but if it if it did. It would be a disaster for all of us. The, the consequences, both economic, political and social, some of which are easy to see. I can tell you financial markets would not like it one little bit. There's no insight in that comment, Jim. I think anybody would know that. Even if you've never invested a single penny in stock markets, you would know that they would go down a lot you, if it happened. You would. So, so some of the um, analysis that's been done, you know, the, the sort of modelling of the impact of this war, uh, by game theorists and others, but one of the conclusions they reach is that I think it's a 12-month war w- between the United States and China would knock 25% off the Chinese economy in 12 months and roughly 10% off the US economy. That sort of economic shock um, for the world's first and second largest economies is absolutely catastrophic. And of course, as you say, financial markets would not like that. And so that's, it's, that's a relatively minor consequence of yes, that, it is, of that course. tragedy. Yeah, yeah. There would be yeah. global food shortages, uh, famines, there would be global energy shortages, there w- it would be an economic catastrophe. And it wouldn't just be people involved in the war who would die. Um, a lot of people around the world would die from various consequences of this war, which is why it's too, uh, too awful a vista to contemplate. And all, all we can say is that let's just hope that nothing like this ever happens yeah but it's 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 interesting that uh, that relationship between china and the united states is now starting to have other sorts of consequences so uh, the united states has put all sorts of sanctions on trade with china particularly in areas like chips 
and um it does the, have consequences jim there's been a, a dutch company i think yes asml, ASML. Yeah, yeah that's but, correct that's that's where i was going with this yeah, actually sorry yeah um China, machines that make chips yes Ch asml is its biggest customer is china and of course the the dutch government is coming under pressure to impose sanctions on that trade but that has all sorts of consequences for uh asml itself and indeed the dutch economy so it's uh it's a story um unfortunately i think we will keep coming back to looking at the united states chris uh, we had the employment report out today um, an increase of 311,000 in non-farm payrolls or in employment the market expectation was 205,000 um between 2010 and 2019 the monthly average increase in employment was 183,000 and um we've seen last month uh, 505,000 this month or f february at least 311,000 so really really strong labor force growth happening in the u.s economy uh, one there's a couple of points about this that i think is interesting and i know you want to talk about the the ability of private sector forecasters not to forecast properly but uh, one of the interesting features that one of the sectors that saw a significant decline in employment was ict information communications technology and uh, why that's particularly interesting is because you know we've seen all these headline stories about the large tech companies laying off workers over the last six months and of course bringing it home to ireland here a lot of those companies are you know big employers in this country and indeed in the 12 months the end of december we did see um the ict sector here in ireland one of the few sectors to record a decline in employment uh, the other aspect is of course how it feeds into the federal reserve's narrative on the interest rate front because the one thing that's clear central bankers are becoming increasingly worried about is the tightness of labor markets everywhere uh the pressure that's coming on wages although the u.s wage situation is quite tame based on today's data but still central bankers are worried about tight interest tight labor markets leading to higher wages and in turn feeding into service sector inflation in particular millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The lesson from the non-farm payrolls today is the same one that you and I have banged on about for ages, which is don't, don't try to forecast anything. Um, but there is an interesting quirk to that same lesson that we keep 
repeating all the time. Economist in the States called Justin Wolfers has pointed out that jobs growth has now exceeded the consensus economic forecast, if you like, the average forecast made by hundreds of different economists who all forecast this particular number because it is so important. Jobs growth has exceeded consensus forecasts 11 months in a row, which should statistically be absolutely impossible because the if a consensus forecast, it's just as likely to be wrong on the upside as it is on the downside. And if each forecast is independent from the last, there's a lot of statistical mumbo jumbo to talk about here, but it's like throwing uh, 11 heads in a row. It's, it's the, the chances each time are 50-50. So the probability of getting it wrong 11 times in a row is 0.5 raised to the power of 11, which means a 0.05% chance, statistically impossible. So that tells me that economists not only can't forecast, and we can't blame them for that, because I don't think the economy and these sorts of numbers are forecastable, the fact that the errors are consistently in the same direction is strongly suggestive that we're using the wrong, wrong model of the labour market, or at least the average economist is using the wrong model. And, uh, to get it this wrong, this consistently, is truly weird, which I think tells us we don't really understand today's modern labour market very well. Do you agree? I, I do agree, actually, yeah. And we, we have spoken many times about the um, inability of economists to forecast. And indeed, uh, I think that is easily understandable. I, I, I obviously have to do a lot of analysis of what's happening in the Irish economy. And over the years, after consistent failure in terms of forecasting, I have gradually sort of morphed into somebody. I now take a very anecdotal approach to what's happening in the economy. So I have a lot of people that I know in different businesses. Um, I ring them regularly. I talk to them about what's happening in their business. And I kind of build up my picture of the Irish economy from the ground up or from the bottom up rather than from the top down, which is what forecasters tend to do. Um, and I, I'm kind of happier that my understanding of the Irish economy is stronger now than it ever was with sort of, well, semi-sophisticated forecasting models that I used in the past. Yeah, it's, that, that this, this is another example of that. And of course, it's easy enough done, I guess, in a small economy like Ireland. Uh, obviously, in a vast economy like the United States, that sort of approach is much more difficult. But I think it is really instructive in understanding what's happening in the economy to talk to the people involved. Uh, you know, we spoke, spoke about the eviction ban during the week. Talking to landlords about their experience is an interesting part of that analysis. Um, looking at other aspects, such as the impact Brexit is having, you talk to people who are actually trading between Ireland and Northern Ireland and Ireland, or Ireland and Great Britain. You know, so uh, but that's that that that's an interesting stat there. Mm. Eleven months totally. But the, the big picture, what we know apart from all our knowledge that we get every day about our ability as forecasters, what we know is that the US jobs market is still very, very tight. Wage growth, I think you mentioned it earlier on, wasn't that big a worry in this particular number. Um, but there have been other numbers that suggest wage growth is a problem in the United States, particularly in the service sector, certainly not behaving well enough to stop the Federal Reserve from raising interest rates. And that if the objective of the Federal Reserve is to start causing job losses, so remember, this is over 300,000 jobs in one month. And over, the, you know, Biden has seen during his presidency millions of jobs created, much, much more than, what was his name? Trump, is that right? Well, than Trump ever did. Boris Trump, yeah. The, the multi-million jobs economy 
extra jobs economy that Biden has presided over is, has been an extraordinary jobs machine. One straw in the wind that was a good piece of news is that labor force participation increased. More people were drawn into the labor force that were previously self-reported out of it, which is a, which is a good thing. Because one of my, my pet theory, quirky theory for why labor markets are tight everywhere is that an awful lot of people, not unlike you and me, Jim, have decided that corporate life is it's such uh, a load of crap these days. It's Corporate life is just so awful that they've gone off and done other things, either become uh, gig work, gig economy workers, or just not working at all. And I think that's something that will emerge in recent years as to why older people, people 50 plus, for example, have left the workforce forever. That's one of the many reasons why I think the labor market is, 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 is so tight. But there are many things we don't understand, as I said at the top of this show about the labor market, on both sides of the Atlantic, very, very tight. If they want to start generating net job losses after these multi-million job increases, the level of interest rates to which we're gonna go is a lot higher than even we have been talking about in recent days, Jim. The monetary tightening that they have done, which has been considerable, has had bugger all impact on the labor market. So when is it going to when is it going to crack? And what have they got to do to generate job losses? Yeah, strikes absolutely. Me. There's a long and, way and, to go. And that's why central bankers are sitting around at the moment, scratching their heads. Yeah, there, there is no doubt about that. Uh, you mentioned the sort of over fifties withdrawing from the labor market for various reasons, not least the um, the what corporate life is actually like. I've been hearing a few stories about people interviewing young people for jobs, either bringing people into a firm new or um, trying to promote people within a firm, you know, and doing an interview to uh, get upgraded or whatever. And that a lot of young people are basically saying, no, I actually don't want to be promoted because the extra money I'll get will be heavily taxed at the extra level of stress. I will have to take on board will be absolutely phenomenal and I still won't be able to afford to buy a house. So what's the point? On a related theme, there was a fascinating article on Bloomberg written by Tyler Cowen. I don't know if you know that name. I do indeed, yeah. Yeah, he's an economist in the States, professor of economics, a a polymath, a public intellectual, astonishing range of talents the man has. Um, But anyway, he wrote a a really fascinating, quirky article about why and how really super smart people don't become super rich. And he was just talking about data, principally actually from Scandinavia, about where the richest top 1%, and in many cases the top 0.1%, looking at measures of intelligence, albeit flawed, like IQ, and noticing that the people with the highest IQ were not in the top 1% of income earners. They would still have plenty of money, and they still have good jobs, and they were very talented and all the rest of it. But it was only very averagely intelligent people that became super rich. And he was suggesting a few reasons as to why that was the case. And this relates to what you were just saying about younger people deciding they don't want the promotion because it comes with too much hassle. Really super, super smart people don't want to become billionaires because they know all the crap that comes with it and they know what they've got to do to get it. So you often find that the really super smart people say, yeah, I've got enough now. And they move on into other areas of their lives rather than just making more money. And I think that we might be seeing signs of that in other cohorts of the population. So that's quirky theory number two of the day, Jim. <laughs> so I'm sorry to be uh, no, no. landing you with all my weird theories about the, about the world. Tell me about um, banking in Silicon Valley. 
Yeah, and be, before I do, Chris, because um, I think banking in Silicon Valley could take up the rest of the podcast. Before we go there, I, I just want to, I, I teach economics, as you know, and, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm always teaching, stu- well, trying to tell students that, you know, economics is very real world. It's, 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 you know, it, it's as on the ground looking at what's happening as you can possibly get. And I was reminded of this this morning, just how real it is. Uh, UK GDP um, was up 0.3% on the month. Okay. That was stronger than expected. And, you know, it flies in the face of the extreme negativity you've had about the UK economy for some time, but I'll, I'll park that for the moment. But a 0.3% month on month increase. But it was interesting. A couple of factors drove the stronger growth. One was fewer strikes. So education output was up significantly, transport health because we'd less strike days than in December. The other area that I found fascinating was the real world, the real world nature of economics is that the output from the arts and entertainment sector uh, rebounded strongly from December. And back in December, the FIFA World Cup was going on in Qatar and Premier League football wasn't happening. Um, and Premier League football returned late December into January and had an impact. So it just shows you, you know, you, you go to a Premier League football match on a Saturday, you spend your money to enter the ground, you buy whatever you buy, uh, the transport associated, you multiply that by 60,000, 70,000 people, or in the case of QPR, by about 14,000 people. Uh, but you can see how this sort of activity has a real world economic um, application. But anyway, I, I digress slightly. Getting back to Silicon Valley Bank, a uh, big story over the last couple of days. It's in trouble. Um, to fill in the listeners who may or may not be aware, but Silicon Valley Bank is a Silicon Valley based bank who finances early stage technology firms. Um, over the last few weeks, it has been getting into financial difficulty, it's been losing deposits. Um, it has taken measures to try and raise cash. Um, it sold a significant bond portfolio and made a loss of $1.8 billion on those bond sales. And um, I think what we're seeing sort of hitting the banking sector, I mean, we spoke in the last podcast we did together about the net interest margin and how banks do well in a rising interest rate environment. But e- equally, it can be said that in a rising interest rate environment where yields are rising where bond prices are falling it does create capital adequacy problems for banks and they are forced to go out there and sell assets raise cash so this seems to be what's happening with silicon valley bank it is a big big story that is resonating as you said all over the world over the last 24 hours yeah particularly in the financial sector the i think one bank index of bank shares in the united states yesterday fell eight percent so it's taking down banks like Bank of America, JP Morgan, who don't have much similarity with uh, this bank in California. Because we lived through the financial crisis of well over a decade ago now, people are wondering, is there another canary in the coal mine? Is this the start of something big? Just as we ignored the early warning signs of the financial crisis back then, which were occurring in quite weird bits of the financial market very esoteric hedge funds were closing. And then all of a sudden, it blew up into a global financial crisis in a way that none of us expected. A lot of us, a lot of people in the early warning days of the great financial crisis said, no, 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 this is very localized. It's very specific. 
it's not systemic. There's nothing to worry about here, nothing to see here move along and how, how wrong those views were. And I have to say that the consensus view of SVB is that the market is getting it wrong. So I think people need to respect the market a wee bit more than they are. But the, the consensus view is SVB is not like any other bank because it is a technology-based bank that it took in a lot of deposits in, in recent years from tech startups that couldn't spend the money as fast as they could and, and simply bought treasuries with it. And the money that is on deposit is started to flow out. So they've had to sell treasury bonds at a loss, all those kinds of things that you're talking about there. So the structure of this bank, its balance sheet, if you like, its assets and its liabilities are pretty unique, if I'm allowed to say that. It's not like the balance sheet of JP Morgan, but everybody was treated the same yesterday because it isn't the only canary in the coal mine at the moment. Uh, there's a couple of property funds around the world that have uh, become closed to withdrawals. And that's got a few financial types nervous because that was very similar to what happened last time. So is it the start of something big? All I can say, a bit like Taiwan, Jim, I don't know, but I certainly hope not. Yeah, I just I just think um, when you're in an environment where monetary policy has been tightened at the fastest pace in decades, uh, there are bound to be um, seriously negative consequences cropping up here and there. And I think this is an example. In my defense, well, not, well you, you weren't having a go at me there. You were having a go at me earlier on, but not there. We have said on this podcast several times that the pace of monetary tightening over the last year or so is unprecedented. Uh, we've gone from zero to quite a lot in all sorts of different jurisdictions very, very quickly. If you'd said before that monetary tightening process started that you'd accurately forecast that that's where interest rates are going to go and that by March you would then be forecasting from this new higher level of interest rates, maybe we've got to go an awful lot higher. I think that you would have started speculating about a financial accident somewhere in the system, that someone who is very exposed to higher interest rates blows up, that the central banks actually end up breaking something in the system. And I think that that is a real possibility still. Chris, um, I'd just like to rapidly cover one final item, um, and that is the uh, savings data published for Ireland uh, relating to the fourth quarter of 2022. Uh, the household savings rate came in at 20%, and that's where it's been for the last couple of years, around 20%. But in quarter one 2019, uh, you know, a year before COVID, that was running at 10%. So there's been a significant increase in household saving in this country. Um, and indeed, in the final quarter of last year, we saved as a country, the household sector, 3.9 billion. And uh, just to explain the savings ratio, is basically the difference between household disposable income and consumption. And that difference is expressed as a percentage of household disposable income. Okay, I hope I haven't lost the um, listeners at this point. But looking at the, the breakdown of that 3.9 billion, basically it's disposable income that's not spent. Okay, so some of that is invested in property or other real assets. And in the final quarter of last year, that is estimated at 3.2 billion. There was 1 billion added to bank deposits, so financial assets as such. Um, that's 4.2 billion. And then uh, there was net borrowing, in other words, of 400 million. In other words, there was 400 million more borrowed than was paid back. So the net result of that 
is we come up with a, a savings level of 3.85 billion, which as a percentage of household disposable income is 20%. Uh, but after all that statistical gook I've tried to go through there, the bottom line is there is an incredibly strong level of personal savings um, on the Irish economic balance sheet at the moment. Glad to hear it, Jim. It, it, if the central banks of the world are determined to break something, at least the Irish consumer's balance sheet is there as something of a shock absorber. Chris, final question for you. Mm. Waldorf or Statler? Very funny. You are referring to a tweet that I put out earlier today on, funnily enough, Twitter, where I just simply took a snapshot of recent reviews of this podcast are, that appear on Apple podcast pages. Uh, anybody is free to put a review, good, bad or indifferent, up there. And one of those reviews referred to the two of us as Statler and Waldorf of economics, which, of course, would only really appeal, I suppose, to a certain demographic that remember who Statler and Waldorf actually were. I guess even kids today watch Sesame Street, don't they? They do, indeed. Oh, do they? I'm not yeah. sure. It's I'm been sure, a long time yeah, yeah. for me, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyway, um, I hope that these are labels and names that do not stick. So do I. Cheers, Jim. See you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 